This week, the computer that learnt to play Go. Everyone in DeepMind was crowded into a room, brimming with excitement, watching AlphaGo's internal evaluation go up and up and up as it started to believe it was winning. And researchers watch 100,000 worms live and die. I think this is possibly the, the, the single best lifespan experiment ever conducted. Plus, the lost library of Tudor scholar John Dee. This is the Nature Podcast for January the 28th, 2016. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith. Fun and games with artificial intelligence first this week. A computer has learned to play the ancient game of Go. Lizzie Gibney reports. Computers beat humans at lots of things. Crunching numbers, remembering long lists, tasks that require a lot of processing power or memory, but not a lot of creativity. In looking for bigger challenges, developers of artificial intelligence have often turned to games. Games need long-term planning, predictive power and cunning, in addition to all the processing power that computers have in spades. Chess was perhaps the most famous one to fall. Chess grandmaster Garry Kasparov lost to Deep Blue way back in 1997. David Silver from Google-owned company DeepMind explains. Most board games were actually relatively straightforward for AIs to actually defeat humans because they could basically use brute force search. Brute force search. Basically, combing through all the moves, imagining the game several turns ahead and choosing the best play. So say your AI is playing chess. Black chooses his move and white considers all the possible follow-ups and black considers all the follow-ups to that. It's possible very easily for a computer to select the best possible move. But there's one game that's never succumbed to brute force. The ancient game of Go. The Go board is a large grid on which players take turns to play smooth black and white counters. Here's David's colleague and co-founder of DeepMind, Demis Hassabis. There are sort of 10 to the 170 board configurations, more than there are atoms in the universe. People always say, if you ask a good Go player, a you know, professional player, why did you play this move? Often they'll tell you, you know, it felt right. And they'll use words like that rather than, you know, calculating it all out like a great chess player might do. Undaunted by the centuries of history and nuance, DeepMind have been developing an AI that can hold its own on a Go board. They're not the only ones. Facebook, too, are working on the problem, and it's preoccupied many AI researchers for decades. In 2014, one Go expert predicted it would be another 10 years until an AI could win against a professional human player. But the new AI, AlphaGo, is a bit precocious. So the main novelty of AlphaGo is that we use deep learning to try and address the enormous search space that we face in the game of Go. Deep learning basically means grasping increasingly abstract concepts by studying lots and lots of data and looking for patterns. In this case, by feeding the computer a bank of images of Go games. It then uses various layers of programming to recognise what's important and what's not. Based on this experience, the AI builds up its own intuition about what moves to play and when. And because AlphaGo has the endless patience of a machine, it was also able to spend lots of time training by playing itself. Finally, AlphaGo sprinkles its newfound intuition onto a traditional brute force search, allowing it to hugely improve its ability to pick the best moves. When it played against other Go programs, it could reliably beat them. At that point, the team was ready for their next challenge. David Silver again. What we really wanted to do was to beat the top humans. My name is Fan Hui. I am three-time champion for a European Go Championship. We played AlphaGo against the European Go champion, Fan Hui. It's me, yes. <laughs> According to our own metrics, 
we believed that AlphaGo was stronger than Fanhui. However, it's very hard to ground our internal evaluation, which was based on computer program playing against computer program, against the strengths of real human players. The two sides decided to play five games over a few days at DeepMind's headquarters in London. David Silver still gets nervous just thinking about the first game. The atmosphere was very tense. Fan Hui was concentrating extremely hard. Uh, the room itself was quiet. We didn't want to distract Fan Hui. The first game I play with AlphaGo, I just want to play simple and easy because I think, okay, he will be strong, but uh, maybe I'm, I think I will be better. I think it's just for the end game, I, I, I make some mistake and I lose the game. Everyone in DeepMind was crowded into a room, brimming with excitement, watching every single move be played up on the board, discussing it, watching AlphaGo's internal evaluation go up and up and up as it started to believe it was winning. First game, computer one, human nil. And the second game, I changed my strategy. Fan Hui decides to change strategy. He said he'd played too calmly and now he was going to start fighting. So we were even more worried going into the second day. We thought, right, now, now he's really understood where, where our weaknesses are, uh, what will happen? He tried very hard to start enormous fights, played very aggressively against um, AlphaGo, and yet we were able to win every single game, five games to zero. It's uh, very hard, very hard for me, but it's a reality. The problem is human. Sometimes we will do very big mistake because if we have a human. But for computer, never this problem. Others in the world of Go are impressed by AlphaGo's achievement, but they stress they were kind of expecting it. Here's Toby Manning from the British Go Association. I think that people will say I was expecting at some stage some software to um, uh, reach this sort of standard, but I didn't think it would happen for another 10 years. We can no longer describe it as the game that computers can't play, but that's... Um, not, I don't think, going to affect how individual people see the, uh, see the game. AlphaGo is already in training for its next big match against a player considered by many to be the best in the world, Lee Sedol of South Korea. As for the world outside games, Demis Hassabis sees plenty of applications for AlphaGo's intelligent algorithms. One of the areas we're certainly very interested in is to help healthcare, maybe in the field of diagnostics. So in diagnostics, you need to be able to recognize things. Um, maybe uh, it's a medical image or something like that. And then we have to make some kind of long-term plan or decision about the kind of treatment um, that might be appropriate. Um, we haven't tried it on any of these things yet, but these are the kinds of um, areas we would love to, um, to, to help with. Thankfully, Fan Hui hasn't lost his Go confidence to a machine. In fact, he thinks players might learn a thing or two from AlphaGo. I think maybe one day we need more about how we can play better with this game. So I think it's a, it's a very, very good thing for the Go community. That was Fan Hui ending that report from Lizzie Gibney. You also heard from David Silver and Demis Hassabis of Google company DeepMind and Toby Manning of the British Go Association. There's more on DeepMind and AlphaGo in Noah's lovely video over at youtube.com slash nature video channel and online at nature.com slash nature you'll find the research paper and the rest of our coverage. Fundamental to all life is one thing. Death. For scientists, understanding death means studying when and why organisms die. 
And when organisms die is precisely what researchers at Harvard Medical School in the USA have been investigating, using huge numbers of tiny C. elegans worms. I think in the paper, the number is something like 100,000 uh, animals. This is lead author Nick Straustrup. But how do you begin to study the lifespans of 100,000 worms? The standard way of carrying out scientific grunt work doesn't work here. You just can't have that many graduate students poking at worms in a lab. Instead, Straustrup and his team have modified a set of flatbed scanners, which take regular snapshots of the worms to check when they stop wriggling. We call this the lifespan machine, and it basically fills up a corridor uh, here in our laboratory. So imagine like uh, a, a relatively dim room with uh, blue flashing lights, um, but inside each of these devices are a little plate of worms. The worms are crawling around and hanging out and living out their lives. This allows lifespan patterns to be studied in exceptional detail. Zach Pincus, who's written a news and views piece about the study, is pretty impressed with the results that this setup has been able to produce. I think this is possibly the, the, the single best lifespan experiment ever conducted. They have so many data points. It, it, it feels much more like physics than biology. The machine allowed the researchers to keep close tabs on exactly how many worms are alive over the course of the experiment. And essentially they were plotting what we call in the field a lifespan curve, which is the, the fraction of animals alive at any given time. So you can imagine it starts off at 100%, all of the animals uh, start off alive, and then over time, um, as more and more animals die, the curve goes down to zero when the whole population has died. With this incredible ability to observe thousands of worms, the effect of different conditions on lifespan could be investigated. Giving the worms a bit less food is known to extend their average lifespan, but it's previously not been clear how it impacts worms at each stage of their life. You might think that eating less food would cause more infant mortality, but then extend the lifespan of the animals that, that manage to make it past development. Or, you know, you, you live longer on average, but then at some point all of the animals get too frail and they're dietary restricted, uh, they, they, they don't have enough energy to, to go on, and then they all just sort of hit a cliff and all die at the same time. By plotting these incredibly accurate lifespan curves, it becomes possible to pick apart how limiting diet changes lifespans. And the answer came as something of a surprise. If dietary restriction were to reduce the risk of one cause of death more than another cause of death, it would change the shape of the lifespan curve. Well, the incredible thing that they observed is, is that it didn't change one bit. Um, the lifespan curve was, was stretched out along the, the, the time axis, as you would expect. It extended the lifespan of the animals. Um, but the shape didn't change at all. And that sounds like a simple thing. Well, of course, they're, they're, they're living longer, so they're aging more slowly, so it must be that the, the, the sort of ticking of time has slowed down. Uh, but that simple observation has very profound implications, that this dietary restriction is precisely changing the risk of all causes of death in exact concert. This seems bizarre. How could changing the diet of the worms be changing their risk from all causes of death by exactly the same amount? Perhaps there's just something peculiar about this dietary restriction. But the researchers also looked at how other lifespan-altering conditions affected the worms. Changing the temperature of the environment, exposing the worms to a toxin, and even changing their genes. 
Almost all of these interventions had the same very peculiar property of completely rescaling every single cause of death in concert, such that the, 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 the overall shape of the lifespan curve is completely unaffected. I find that fascinating. You would, you would definitely expect that interventions this diverse, some of them might have more effect on, on infant mortality and some of them might have more effect on, on late life mortality, and that's, that's absolutely not the case. But why isn't this the case? Why are infant mortality and late life mortality affected by just the same amount whenever lifespan is changed by the worm's conditions? One possibility, Zach explains, is that these changes to the worms don't directly affect their risk of particular causes of death. Instead, they change the worm's overall vulnerability to all causes of death by changing how resilient the worms are. It's a concept that has been in use in, for example, human clinical practice for a long time, a concept like frailty or resilience. There are simply some, some people are, are more frail. I think we all know, you know a, a robust person in our, in our lives who never seems to get sick versus a frail person who's, who's always injuring themselves um, in, in numerous different ways and always seems to be more sickly. But it's not clear if these results will translate to our ideas of our own frailty. Back to researcher Nick Straustrup for his final thoughts. I think that the, the reality is that these worms are living 18 days and humans are living ideally, you know, 80, 90, 100 years. And so the questions are, you know, to what extent are these principles going to uh, scale up to much, much longer timescales? But I think this temporal scaling is going to be a good sort of baseline model on which the additional biological complexities of mammals is going to be overlaid. That was Nick Straustrup, whose lifespan paper is available now at nature.com forward slash nature. Before him, you heard from Zach Pincus, who works at the Washington University School of Medicine in Missouri. His news and views is available online at the same address. Stay tuned for the tale of the stolen library. But before that, it's time for the research highlights with Noah Baker. Prairie voles appear to comfort their upset friends. Researchers separated, then reunited pairs of voles. The voles spent much more time grooming partners that had been through stressful experiences during their time apart, even though they hadn't watched the stressful event. Their stress hormone levels even went up, as if in sympathy. Blocking oxytocin, the love hormone, stopped the voles from consoling their cage mates. Check out the full paper in Science. Give a patient insulin and their blood sugar might be controlled for a day at most. Give them cells that make insulin and the effect will last a lot longer. That's the idea anyway. And some people with type 1 diabetes that can't make their own insulin already get cell transplants. But the body's immune system can attack this foreign tissue. Now, scientists have developed a way to shield implanted cells from attack by encasing them in a thin, porous biomaterial. These implants seem to do the job when tested in diabetic mice. Find out more in Nature Medicine. There's no greater symbol of scholarship than a big library. And in the 1500s, nobody had a bigger library than John Dee. Dee was an Elizabethan scholar, a man of science, but also into alchemy, astrology and the occult. At this time, science still blurred into magic and no one batted an eyelid. Dee proudly amassed his book collection over many years. 
but when he left the country for a long voyage abroad, he trusted the library to the wrong people. It was ransacked and dispersed. A new exhibition at the Royal College of Physicians in London looks at the fate of Dee's library and the items that made their way into the college's collection. They hold the largest remaining set of Dee's books. I asked curator Emma Backhouse what we know about John Dee. So we know that he was born in 1527. He died 1608 or 1609. So he was alive at the time of Elizabeth I, but also from Henry VIII up until James I. So he lived through the reign of um, five different monarchs. Um, he was a royal courtier. He was interested in alchemy and astrology and all subjects to do with natural history and what we would today call science. But he, also, he was also interested in sort of the occult world, so he was interested in trying to converse with angels to learn more about what they do, who they are. He lived in Mortlake uh, in southwest London. He built new rooms as laboratories where he performed alchemy and he also built a library. Now, he was very famous during his lifetime for having the biggest library in the country at the time and this is sort of the focus of our exhibition, that's where we get our books from. Just how big is a big library by Elizabethan standards? So in Dee's library he collected over 3,000 volumes and about 1,000 manuscripts. These are books that he collected from the UK, from England and also from all over Europe, so he travelled a lot. This library was larger than Cambridge and Oxford University libraries. And what can you and others who have looked at some of the, of the collection in some depth, what can you learn from actually looking at someone's books that they've owned? you learn about them? Well, the wonderful thing about the books that Dee owned are um, they're such a wide um, range of subjects, so they reflect his personal interests, the subjects that he spent his lifetime studying, but also he's annotated them all the way through with really, really wonderful comments. So when we have a look at the books, we can see that he will underline sections that he's particularly interested in. He'll write little notes in the margins. Um, let me show you one over here, because there's a brilliant example of a fact that we don't know from anywhere else in his life. Mm. So just underneath the notes at the back of the book, there's one single line. It's quite faint, but basically it sort of describes that Dee was in the service to the Earl of Pembroke, William Herbert. Now, this is the only bit of information we know that exists of his service to this character. Do you know if he was rare in writing all over his books? or um, <laughs> uh, Was this very no, common? No, I, I think it was quite a common practice. Dee was quite unusual because of just the volume of his annotations. You can see in this book... Here, you know, he was very much interested in alchemy and he's, he's very, very heavily engaged with these books and he's also writing comments about, you know, what's going on. He's writing critiques of the text, but he also does really wonderful drawings. So you can see in the margins on the right-hand side where he's bracketed a section of the text, he's actually sort of converted <laughs> it into a wonderful little face with a little beard. Oh, yeah, you can see the, the kind of middle bit of the bracket is the nose. Yeah, that's right. the eye at the top. How so painful. I, I don't think that's especially common. Well, he was daydreaming as he was, he was learning. Daydreaming. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how, how did this collection, this part of the collection at least, there are not 3,000 books and volumes here no. and 1,000 manuscripts, but how did these ones end up here? So we have over 100 books that we believe um, were in John Dee's library. And now um, it's actually quite a complicated story. So Dee spent a lot of his time building up his library. In the 1580s, he went on a quite a long journey to Eastern Europe. I think he was away for about six years, and he left his library under the care of his brother-in-law, Nicholas Frommens. Now, whilst Dee was away, Frommens, for some reason, reason, was allowing people into his home, and a lot of his books and his equipment were taken away. 
So we think this is by people who knew exactly what he had in his collections and perhaps were stealing them to order. Now the books that we have here, we believe they were originally stolen by uh, Nicholas Saunders, who was possibly a pupil of Dee's. We don't know how many he may have stolen, but they ended up in the collection of the Marquis of Dorchester. In 1680, Dorchester's library was bequeathed to us, including the hundred or so books stolen by Nicholas Saunders that once belonged to Dee. And, I mean, short of him having written property of John Dee mm. on them, how yeah. do you go about... I mean, did he do that? Yeah, he did, actually. actually <laughs> so that one's, those are obvious. Yeah. <laughs> What's quite interesting is that some of the books that Saunders stole, he's actually got rid of Dee's name and written his own name over the top of it. Oh, so right. He's just scrubbed it out. He just scrubbed it out and written over the top. Originally it said Johannes Dee, 1559, presumably when he bought it, and that's been sort of scrubbed out and written over the top is Nick Saunders, 1589. That is just blatant, <laughs> isn't it? I wonder what would have become of... I mean, it was a bigger library, you said earlier, a bigger library than Oxford and Cambridge had at the time. I mean, if it hadn't been ransacked while he was away, what, what would we have on our hands now? Something that would compete with the Bodleian, some kind of independent library institution? Um, I don't know. It's hard to say because, obviously, it was a private collection by Dee. He spent his money on travelling to collect the books and he bought the books himself. Um, at the end of his life, he wasn't a wealthy man, so he lost a lot of his money it's hard to know whether he would have been in a situation to continue growing his library, so we can't really know that for sure. And, I mean, for those listeners who think, oh, one day I'm going to be a famous scientist, the history of science will look upon my textbooks and marvel at my doodles. I mean, is this, a <laughs> is this an argument for us all to just keep doodling in the margins? Oh, I think so. I mean, it certainly, for D, seemed to have been quite a creative process. Um, I think so. <laughs> That was curator Emma Backhouse of the Royal College of Physicians. The exhibition has just opened at their headquarters in London's Regent's Park and runs until the end of July. And if you're not local, the RCP website has some lovely examples of Dee's doodles. rcplondon.ac.uk slash events. All the customary news goodies over at nature.com forward slash news this week, including a primate model of autism and a dog model of OCD. And Backchat will be coming your way very shortly. We digest Planet X, rumours and science, and the selfish gene 40 years on from its publication. That's all we've got time for this week. If you've got any questions or comments, why not drop us an email at podcast at nature.com or tweet at us at naturepodcast. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. 